Good morning, Lincoln Avenue. Open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, we uh, have been working through a short series in uh, the book of Revelation. And uh, I think this is about our maybe ninth or tenth week in the book. Today we are uh, going to do something a little bit different. Um, I will I will try to stay mainly in Revelation chapter 14. Um, but let me just uh, go ahead and tell you what I did. I, I really, what, what I did is looked all through the book of Revelation um, for pictures of God's wrath. So really what, what you're going to have today is a somewhat of a topical sermon, somewhat of a survey um, through the book of Revelation um, on the topic of God's wrath. Now, for the sake of time, um, the, the, if, you, if you've read the whole book, uh, you know that there are multitudes of pictures of the wrath of God um, in all different kind of shapes and forms. And so um, so we, we really don't have time to, to look at all of them. So I'm going to try to pull uh, from a couple key parts, um, but really much, many of the themes can be found in, in 14, I think. I, I, I finally kind of settled on that as a central passage um, that kind of branch out, and, and, and we'll, we'll look at a few different other passages as well. Okay, so Revelation 14, and just uh, for the sake of kind of getting our minds focused in the right direction here this morning, I want to read to you uh, verses 6 through 13. So Revelation chapter 14, and then we're going to begin um, with verses 6 through um, verse 13. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name." Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Father, we have a heavy subject today. Father, I I can't get my head around the horrificness of hell and of the wrath of God. And so, Father, I pray that 
you might help us to act in faith today. Lord, that we would receive your word as truth and that we would act accordingly. Father, I pray for a responsiveness to your word today. That it would be taken with all seriousness and gravity. Spirit, help us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is uh, not a pleasant topic to look at. The images that we're going to see are, are graphic and are disturbing. Um, this is not the popular sermon. Um, Revelation chapter 1 was this great picture of the resurrected Jesus. And then we had, uh, I think, really applicable stuff in seven letters to seven different churches. In Revelation 5, we had the worthy is the Lamb. Uh, in Revelation 12, last week, kind of the victory of Christ in the history of the world. And so thus far, we've really picked things that, that were very exciting, um, very encouraging. Um, and I hope that those will be in your mind as we look at what we're going to look at today. To answer the question, why would we spend a Sunday looking at something so terrifying and graphic. Let me give you an illustration that maybe will help that. My wife has been reading the book Unbroken. I saw the movie. I haven't read the book. She said the book is better. Um, but she's been reading the book Unbroken. Um, and in one of the stories, it's of course about World War II, one of the stories toward the end of the book um, talks about the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, if you go to Google, if you look this up on Wikipedia, Google, all, there's a whole bunch of side taxes on it. There's a lot of disagreement about how many leaflets were dropped and when and where and, and all of that. But what, what is clear is that the United States military dropped leaflets upon the Japanese cities that were to be bombed. And particularly, if you look at the Truman Archives, uh, which is what I have a copy of here in front of me, uh, what you find is that shortly after an atomic bomb was dropped on the Japanese city of Hiroshima, and 140,000 people were killed, either from the blast and shock wave that measured, and this doesn't mean anything to me, but I'm trusting that it means something to somebody, 15 kilotons, um, the fireball that was 10,830 degrees Fahrenheit, or the poisonous radiation. So after that bomb was dropped, the U.S. military dropped leaflets on the city of Nagasaki. And here is what it, I'm going to read a portion of it to you. To the Japanese people, America asks that you take immediate heed of what we, what we say on this leaflet. We are in possession of the most destructive explosive ever devised by man. A single one of our newly developed atomic bombs is actually the equivalent of explosive power to what 2,000 of our giant B-29s can carry on a single mission. This awful fact is one for you to ponder, and we solemnly assure you it is grimly accurate. We have just begun to use the weapon against your homeland. If you still have any doubt, make inquiry as to what happened in Hiroshima when just one atomic bomb fell on that city. Before using this bomb to destroy every resource of the military by which they prolongingly prolonging use by which they are prolonging this useless war, we ask that you now petition the emperor to end the war. 
Our president has outlined for you the 13 consequences of an honorable surrender. We urge that you accept these consequences and begin the work of building a new, better, and peace-loving Japan. You should take steps now to cease military resistance. Otherwise, we shall resolutely employ this bomb and all our other superior weapons to promptly and forcefully end the war. Evacuate your city. This is in bold. Evacuate your cities. Attention, Japanese people. Evacuate your cities. In the book Unbroken, it talks about how the military authorities in Nagasaki immediately um, warned the citizens that if they had received a, a leaflet, if they had found a leaflet, they were to turn it into the government office immediately. They were to tell no one or show anyone upon penalty of death. So the Japanese authorities basically told people, do not heed the warning. And they kept the warning from those who could have escaped. And on noon, on August 9th, 80,000 people were killed in the explosion of Nagasaki. I can't imagine anything more cruel than knowingly to hide or dismiss a warning that could save people. What you have in your hand, if you don't have one, we will get you one promptly. What you have in your hand is a Bible that gives a clear, detailed warning. This is important. A clear and detailed warning of what is coming and how you might escape that wrath. And it would be wrong of me. And it would be wrong of you if we were to ignore not only the warning for ourselves, but also the proclamation of that warning to everybody that we know. And so today we're going to look at the wrath of God. Now who, who will be under the wrath of God? That's the first question that I want to talk to you about. So we're going to start in verses, uh, in chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. It says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Notice that before the judgment comes, an angel proclaims the gospel in all the world. Okay, It's a very clear picture of, of who, who will be under the wrath of God. Those who reject this gospel. I mean, that, that's actually the clearest answer. Those who do not respond to the eternal gospel being proclaimed. Okay, the gospel is, you know what I think, but let's talk about it. The news that God has stepped out of heaven and became a man in in the person of Jesus Christ. That he lived a perfect life showing us who God is, teaching us the truth about God and about salvation and about sin, and then dying a substitutional death on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. And then the third day, rising from the dead and extending salvation and forgiveness to all who would repent 
repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. And the angel here is proclaiming the eternal gospel. Okay? Now, now I want you to focus on that. The eternal gospel. The, the, the word gospel means good news. That's what it means. Euangelion. Good news. Okay? And so, so what the Bible is telling us here is we have this eternal good news. I can't think of anything else that is eternal good news. Okay? There, there's lots of good news, things that are exciting for a little while, but then they fade or they come to the point where they're no longer valid or they're no longer good or they're no longer exciting, okay? But, but the Bible is saying there is a message. The message is in the person of Jesus Christ and the salvation brought to us through him that is an eternal good news. It's eternal, okay? There's some things that are good news that fade over time, okay? Guess what, guys? The Chiefs won the Super Bowl, In 1969, right? I mean, it was exciting in 1969, but it has not happened since. I'm sorry, Kansas City fans. I see some of you back there. That was a long time. That was before I was born, okay? And so what was once good news has faded. It's no longer good news. They've been bad too long for it to be good news anymore. But what the Bible is saying here is that the message of Jesus Christ will be good news eternally. We will celebrate the good news of what Christ has done for billions of years because for billions of years we will experience the benefits. Do you see that? I mean, it is news that brings benefit, that brings glory, that brings riches forever and ever. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is the gospel, okay? It's good news. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul has just told you the good news of the gospel, that in Christ Jesus, because of God's mercy, he has made a way for us to be connected to Christ and be saved, okay? Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then listen to this. So that in the coming ages, ages, billions of years, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you you see what Paul is saying? That to be connected to Christ means you are placed placed in Christ and, and then God forever, for eternity to come, pours out his riches upon you. They never run dry because God's glory never runs dry. All right, and so what the angel is proclaiming in Revelation 14, what you ought to be proclaiming in Revelation 14 is the eternal good news of the gospel. So what we have here is the image of wrath that's about to be seen here in chapter 14 is deeply disturbing. It is frightening, okay? But what we see is that first the gospel has come. The leaflets, if you will, have been dropped on all the earth. That is why the gospel will be preached to every nation, tribe, and tongue before Jesus comes back. That's why you saw pictures of India scrolling across the street. That's why we sent money there this week, okay? It's because the gospel must go out. The leaflets must be dropped. You have a responsibility to proclaim this gospel, to proclaim the person and the work of Jesus Christ everywhere you go. The gospel has gone out so that the wrath of God may be held back from men. That men might escape the wrath of God. That by believing and embracing and trusting the gospel, 
Remember last week, Revelation 12, 11, the saints, they conquer. They're victorious by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So who will, who will receive the wrath of God? Those who reject the gospel. Now, there's lots of other images. That's the one I picked to really kind of drive home. But, the, but we could say, you know, everyone whose name is not written in the book of life. We could say um, everyone uh, who, who, has, who has resisted Christ in, in Revelation 20, um, it, it is very thorough in saying that everybody will come before the judgment. In Revelation 20, it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up their dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death of the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. So uh, again, just saying the same thing we just said. Those who reject the gospel... Those who reject the worship of the true God will receive the wrath of God. Now, why will they receive the wrath of God? Well, again, lots of answers to that. Let me try to unpack that as in Revelation. I want to start in Revelation 20, 13, a verse we just read. It says, And the sea gave up the dead were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Okay, so I want you to see that the wrath of God is tied to the holiness of God, okay? So, so the wrath of God is tied to the holiness of God, and so when men sin, there must be a response from God, okay? So, so the sins of men, okay, actually affect the wrath of God. So because God is holy, God cannot be unholy. You know, when, when people ask, you know, why does God have to judge sin? Why is there hell? Why would God do that? God cannot be who he's not. God is a holy God. God cannot be sinful. He, he cannot love sin. He cannot rejoice in iniquity. Okay, God is, he is not that. That's not what he is. God is a holy God. Now, is he patient and long-suffering? My, thousands of years worth, okay? I mean, millennia patient. Continually patient. Long-suffering. But God is holy, and His holiness demands that sin would be judged. And so God's wrath is just, and it's a necessity. God is a standard of holiness, and because God is holy, He must judge sin. Has He made a way for people to escape that judgment? Absolutely, what we just talked about in the cross of Jesus. But the wrath of God is in accordance with the sins of men. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. That's what Romans says. And so in a little way, the more you reject Jesus, the more you say, this doesn't matter. I matter. My stuff matters. My money matters. My job matters. My pleasure matters. God, you don't matter. The more you say that, the more you store up wrath. It's not that God is, is giving it. You're, you're, you're storing it up. 
It's the sinfulness of men that determines the wrath of God. Those who come under the wrath of God are those whose lives give evidence that they did not know or love or embrace the Savior, Jesus Christ. If you go to 21, 18, Revelation 21, not 18, 8, 21, 8, I'm sorry. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, there are several such lists in the New Testament. I'm going to read a couple more here in just a second. This is not, I repeat, this is not a, well, I need to do good more, th- do more good things than I do bad things, and that's the way I'll escape the wrath of God. No, not at all. Okay? The, these lists are demonstrating that a person ha- has not put their faith in Christ. Their life has not been changed. There is not visible evidence in them that they are submitted to and seeking and loving the Lord Jesus Christ. A believer, and we talked about this all through our, our study in 1 John, a believer cannot live in habitual unrepentant sin. And so is it possible for a person to, having, having done some of those things and, and escaped the wrath of God? Absolutely. Okay, 1 Corinthians 6, let me read this list. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, or drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, look what happened. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. In other words, you put your faith in Christ. You were joined to Jesus in a vital faith relationship. And because of that vital faith relationship, God began to work sin out of your life. He began to work in such a way that you begin to change. That sin no longer had, had control and dominion over you. And so Revelation is pointing out that, that there is evidence, clear evidence, in those who will receive the wrath of God. Who will receive the wrath of God or why will they receive it? Because they're, they're worshipers of something other than God. If you'll notice again in 14.9, 14.9, another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. If you go up further, um, verse 8, uh, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. You're going to find all kinds of passages in the book of Revelation that talk about, in one kind of image or another, people who worship things other than God. You'll find this image of drunkenness, of, of, of gorging oneself on, on, on an idol, living for something that was not God. Who will receive, or why will they receive the wrath of God? Because they're unrepentant. Chapter 16, we're not going to have time to go into very much of it today, but, but it's, it's amazing. The angels are pouring out the, the bowls of wrath, and in, like in verse 8 and, and, and 11, notice, the fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. And then notice this refrain, they did not repent or give him glory. Okay, and then verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. These are unrepentant people. 
It's always amazing to me, even before all of this will happen, how many people will suffer difficulty and struggle and consequences for their sin and yet not repent. What is the wrath of God? So we've looked at who, why, now, finally, what is the wrath of God? Well, I want to, I want to take you clear back to chapter 6. I think you have several pictures of the wrath of God in the book of Revelation, so we're going to try to get a little broader picture of, of everything that the Bible says, okay? And so I, I'm going to read, um, let's read verses 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. <clears throat> as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The way that I might describe this section to you is that all that is known and trusted and depended upon crumbles. I mean, I think that's what we see in chapter 6. Um, I don't know if it's literally fall star, stars falling from the sky. I actually think that's probably representative of kings and rulers and nations. The reason I believe that is, if you remember in Revelation 12, last week we saw that the dragon in his fall, in verse 4, says his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. We don't, we don't think those were celestial beings. We believe that those were demonic beings, right? Those were spiritual authorities. And so I, I think the Bible is consistent in using that phrase and so what I think you're seeing here in chapter 6 is nations toppling. I think you're seeing governments falling. I think you're seeing everything that people have depended upon for peace and security and safety just being wiped out. It talks about mountains and islands. I mean, things that you would never think would be moved. And all of a sudden, they're crashing down and coming down and everything of this life. You know, later it's going to be Babylon, Babylon, you know, has fallen. You know, Babylon represents the world systems. And, and I think what, you, what you're going to see in Revelation is everything that people put their trust in, everything they love, everything they live for, crumbles down to the ground. But then it gets worse. As we begin to look at the pictures of God's wrath in hell, particularly, we see several characteristics. The first one I, I want to bring to your attention I would describe as never-ending torment. In chapter 14, verse 11, it says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. If we go to chapter 20, I'm just trying to give you a cross-section of chapter 20, verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire, and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It seems very clear to me in the book of Revelation and also in the Gospels, really the entire New Testament, that, that hell is torment forever. You have the picture of smoke. Um, I think that is a, that is a metaphor um, for for something being consumed, okay, something being tormented, something something on fire, 
and it says the smoke goes up forever and ever. I, I think you get the picture. If, if you burn something, when it's burned up, it's, the smoke goes out, right? And when everything's consumed and done, there's no more. Okay, but, but here, the smoke goes up forever and forever. And then to press the point even further, and, and, and I think it's because there, there, <clears throat> there, there's this mechanism in all of us that says, man, this has got to not be true. Somehow we gotta, we got to work our way out of this. Somehow, you know, it, it, this can't be what it's like. Surely it's just for a little time, and then, then they're done, and it's over. Maybe like a hundred years, a thousand years, you know. I mean, there's got to be an end. And then to drive it home, verse 11 says, and they have no rest day or night. No rest day or night is their condition. Forever and ever is the duration. Never a reprieve. Never a break. Never a rest. Continually in the condition of God's wrath. Forever. Some have said that the eternal fires are only for the devil and the demons, but the unredeemed people have a different fate. Uh, Again, I I don't think there's scriptural evidence for that at all. I think on the contrary, Matthew 25, 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and the angels. They have the same fate as the devil and the angels. Revelation 14, 11. Uh, the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast, the worshipers of the beast, and, and, and its name, the idolaters, okay? They're in the same condition. Revelation 19, uh, verses 14 and 15. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine lemon, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which is to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. It's the same fate. Matthew 25, 46. There are many who who have said it's just for a time. I would say Matthew 25, 46 seals the fact that if hell is just for a time, then heaven is just for a time. Listen to 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now those are the same words. Do you see that? The wicked go away into eternal punishment, and in the Greek they're the same words, and, and the wicked into, or the, I'm sorry, the wicked into eternal punishment, the righteous into eternal life. The, the duration is the same, and, and we would all agree that clearly the Scripture says there is no end to heaven. We will be with Him. We just looked at Ephesians 2, 7, for all ages to come. No rest, no reprieve. No comfort. In my mind, that is probably the most terrifying thing about hell. Is to to enter a place where there will never be any change. There's no getting out of it. There's no being sorry. There's no, I I, I made a mistake. I made a wrong turn. How do I fix this? There, There is none of that. There is that right now. There's that now. Today, you can turn. Today, you can you can put your faith in Christ. Today you can can embrace the Savior and have the riches of God forever. But there's coming a time where there will not be. I don't don't know that my mind can fathom that. 
I mean, no matter, how, no matter how terrible our present situation might be, we always have hope that things might change, right? You, you've been in situations before where it was terrible, right? You had a surgery and it was horrible pain or, or you got sick, you got the stomach flu and you thought, man, I just want to die. And so, but, but you always had hope of a rescue or a cure or an end or a savior or a change or a treatment or a doctor or a relief. And, and even if none of that works in this life, you always have the hope of death. There are times where death, death seems sweet because it will end the misery. But in hell, there's no change. The sinner has made his choice to finally and eternally reject the Savior, and there is nothing more for them but hell. The Bible uses several images that I think would be worthy of our unpacking real quickly. Three particularly. Number one, the lake of fire. Um, I've already read you several. Uh, 1920, let's try that. Um, The beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. And These were thrown alive into the lake that burns with sulfur. Lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Um, all, all through the Bible, there's this image. A question I get asked a lot, is this literal flames? Okay, Is it literal flames? I, you know, I, I'll just be honest. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I mean, the Bible very clearly presents lake of fire, f- flames. T- t- over 20 times in the New Testament, the depiction of hell and torment is, is used with fire, flames. Okay? And so I have no reason to believe it's not, okay? Um, people bring up, well, literal flames would consume the victim, well, our bodies now, but what, 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 do our, what does our state look like in hell, okay? Um, it's clearly a, a place where the victim is never consumed. In Mark 9, 48, there's this horrible picture of where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, um, referring to a parasite. In other words, you know, if you picture... Jerusalem's trash dump, Gehenna, where that word comes from, was a place where often criminals, their bodies were thrown and they'd be burned and they would decompose there. And at some point, the parasites would finish them off and at some point, there'd be nothing left and the the parasite would die. And in Mark 9, it says the parasite never dies, okay? Indicating that it goes on forever and ever. And so, again, a lot of people, well, it can't be literal flames. Just honestly, why would that matter? Does that make sense? I mean, the Bible is giving you an image to say, this is what you must avoid. Dr. Kirkendall was talking to me the other day, and he was talking about his bicycle wreck. I don't, you guys, I don't know if you know or not, Doc had a, about 20 years ago or so, Doc had a, a horrible bicycle wreck. He had it. It was hit by a semi. Um, but he talked about, he was talking about his skin graft. And they, they took a patch of skin, I think it was off his thigh, in order to graft skin elsewhere. And he talks about that when he, the first time he got up to try to, to, to go to the restroom, the, the full force of that pain hit. And, and, and he was like, he said it was on, he, he used the words, he said it was on fire. He said, Jason, it was, he said, I, I saw white in my eyes, at spots. He said, I was in such incredible pain. It was like it was burning. It was like someone was holding an iron on it. Okay, now, now, was his leg on fire? No, it wasn't. There was no flames. Okay, but what's he, what's he, what's he communicating? 
We get it, right? I mean, none of us, nobody would stop him and say, hold on, was it really on fire, you know? Well, that's not the point. The point is he's communicating this horrific pain. Another image used continually is this of the wine press. Um, trying to find one here. And I can't. 1419, there we go. Okay, hold on here. So the angel swung a sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. I think that's 184 miles, I believe. Revelation 19, 15. From his mouth come a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. I, I don't know that I've ever seen a winepress except for on Google. Um, but it's usually some kind of container. Um, in this day it would have been probably like a stone in which they would put the grapes and then they would pressure. They would smash, crush. I mean, it's, it's basically the picture of continuous crushing pressure. Um, we don't have, we're running out of time. Let's look at the cup. This is one we can't skip, okay? So, so all throughout, you have this image of the cup of God's wrath, of the cup of his anger, the cup, the cup of his wrath, uh, the wine of his wrath, the cup of his anger, I think is how, how it goes. So in verse uh, 10 of chapter 14, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength in the cup of his anger, um, Earlier, he talks about the nations drinking of their, the cup of idolatry. Okay, so this is a common image. But I, but I want to show you that it's really common all throughout the Bible. Psalm 23, 6 talks about the Lord is my portion, my cup runneth over. Okay, um, there, there's lots of, of images of the cup being wrath. Uh, Psalm 75 uh, verses 7 and 8. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. With foaming wine well mixed, he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. Um, we don't have time, but Isaiah 51, 17 through 20 is, is one where he talks about um, the wicked drinking the wrath of God until they're drunk. And, and, and in other words, you have to have it all, okay? But, but here's the image I, I, want, I want you to get full force, okay? So when we go to Jesus the night before his crucifixion, okay? In Matthew 26, we find him in the upper room with his disciples and, and they partake of the Lord's Supper, okay? And so, so get this, all right? So Matthew 26, Okay, as they were eating, Jesus took bread after blessing and he broke it. He gave the disciples, you take, eat, this is my body. And then verse 27, and he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus takes, takes his disciples and, and he says, all right, this is my blood in the cup. Here's the cup. This is my blood. Drink of it. Take it in. All of it. Take it in. Okay? And then he goes right from there to the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember what happens there? He tells his disciples, guys, pray for me. Pray for me. The anguish of what is about to happen is so intense that he's sweating drops of blood. Okay? And then do you remember what he prays? Verse 39. 
Going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now what cup is that? It's your cup. Your sins have accumulated the wrath of God. Jesus gives his disciples the cup of his blood, if you will. And then he goes to the garden. And he's got to drink our cup. Three times, remember? Father, take this from me. There's another way. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And then Jesus goes to the cross. And he takes the wrath of God for us. He drinks the cup. Now in the book of Revelation, it is saying those who refuse Jesus' blood, those who are not interested in the cup of him, well, you're going to drink your own cup then. Real quickly, because we're out of time, application. I want this to be practical. So let me give you some things I thought of just real quickly. First of all, first of all, after seeing the wrath of God very clearly in the Bible, we ought to be able to do this. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I have this continual stream of people coming in my office. And really what they want is vengeance. They've been hurt legitimately, legitimately. There's something in us all because we're made in the image of God that cries out for justice. That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It cries out for justice. God, we want justice. We, We want this wrong to be righted. Someone hurt us. And we want that taken care of. But then the New Testament comes and says, God says, I will take that. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. So many. I don't care how you slice it. This is what we're saying. God, I don't trust you to do a good job. I'm going to take vengeance. I want to cause pain. I want them to suffer. I want to hurt them. I remember uh, one particular couple, not, not from here. They were in my office for over a year. And we just we couldn't make probably couldn't. And the thing was that she just wanted him to suffer. Still wanted to be married, still wanted still wanted to go forward, but but wanted him to suffer. And no matter how much she could inflict upon him, no matter how contrite or repenting, she just, it's, there's never enough. And I remember I finally just, I went to some of these passages. I said, what? You don't believe God will do a good job? You know? I mean, if he's not repenting, if this is all just a show, I mean, it, it's either one or the other. It's either Jesus bears it or he'll bear it. And this is what it looks like. We, we can't do a better job than God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. 
you should be able to leave that to God. Number two, thankfulness and awe that the wrath of God was taken for me. Revelation 14, 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. Blessed, I mean, blessed are the dead. You hear that? I mean, blessed are those who, who are in the Lord. Fortunate, happy. You should feel that. Number three, fear God. And what the angel says after he proclaims the eternal gospel, Revelation 14, 7, and he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Fear God. Take him seriously. Take his word with the utmost gravity. We ought to tremble at the eternal damnation that is coming. You were there. You were on the precipice. You were falling off. You were headed to hell. All of this was yours forever. And if you're a believer, God reached down and plucked you out of that. Your response should not be a flippancy toward Him, but a trembling. Not a trembling and being afraid of Him, but a... You ever, something terrible almost happened and, and you get rescued from You know, your kid almost is run over in the, in the street and you grab him just in time. But he's safe. But, but you're sitting there shaking. Why are you sitting there shaking? The thought of what, what, what would have been. Number four, endure. Verse 12. Notice right after the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. The worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of his name. And then verse 12. Here is a call for endurance. Man. You, you get tired in the Christian life, you know? You, you start to get wore out. Life gets busy and you want to just peel off and quit after reading what's coming? Are you going to slow down? Are you going to retire? Are you going to head into this half-hearted? It's a call for endurance. Verse 7, give him glory. Fear God and give him glory. Speak in ways that show his magnificence. Live in ways that show he's glorious. Point to his glory. Reflect his glory. Number six, proclaim the gospel. Proclaim it. I'm not very good at that. Who cares? How How could you be bad at it? Urge them, plead, warn, love, give something. This is what's coming. Real quickly. Some of you after, I believe, seeing so clearly the eternal wrath of God that's upon sin, you may put your fist down and say, you know what, if that's who God is, if, if God would pour out his wrath in such a way, then I want nothing to do, him, do with him. Um, I I plead with you to consider one thing that's monumentally important here. I'm not God and you're not God. Uh, It it doesn't, we're not the creator. It doesn't really matter whether we agree or not. Does that make sense? For one thing, we saw this in the book of Job, we don't have the vantage point 
to place judgment on God. I mean, we really don't. It's like me trying to call if someone's safe or out at the Woodard ballpark from here, from the pulpit. Open the window up. Let me see. I can't call that. I can't see it. Some of you, after seeing and clearly understanding the eternal wrath of God, may just refuse to believe it. Nah, it's not true. It's too hard to face. I'm just going to find a way to make the Scripture say something else. I heard a guy tell me one time, hell's not real, nobody goes there. You know, I mean, it just, it just struck me that <laughs> you're going to make that kind of statement on, on, on the evidence of this. You don't want it to be true. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like me telling you, I'm nine foot tall. You know, I am. Measure me. I'm not. Just because we say it doesn't make it true. And, and listen, what good would it do? Well, let me tell you what good it would do. We would, feel a little, we would feel better about not telling people about the gospel. We'd feel better when people reject it. We'd, we'd, we'd feel more relaxed in coasting through life. There's the benefit. But to be blunt, is the relaxing of your mind of greater value than the soul of your friend or your child? I don't think it is. God revealed his truth because we need it. We need to see it. We need to hear it. It's for our good. It will do good things in us. It will make the gospel sweeter. It will drive us to love people more, to have compassion upon them, to open our mouths with the free gift of the good news of the gospel. We need to hear it. Let's pray. Father, help us to respond rightly to the reality of the wrath of God that's coming. Father, I pray that the Scriptures would do their work in us. God, do what they're supposed to do in us. Move us. God, if there are those here today that they, they don't know, they don't know if they're going to heaven or not, they don't know if they're joined to Christ, God, I pray that there would be an urgency, that there would be a, a, a passionate desire to, to figure that out quickly, to turn to you this morning in faith, to call out to you, for salvation, to trust you, to follow you, to love you, to seek you, to treasure you. God, I pray that you would put the gospel on our lips, Lord. In Jesus' name.